The case information provided during this program includes details of violent criminal acts and may upset, shock, and offend some listeners. Any named suspects should be considered innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law. This episode is part two in a series focused on Midwest murders. The last episode began in the south side of Chicago with the murder scene of Arnie Graves. The longtime veteran Chicago detective who worked that case told us about the extraordinary scene, which appeared to be by someone who wanted cops to think it was done by a satanic ritual serial killer. In this episode, the murder victim's car ends up about two hours south of Chicago. The two suspects in that car end up on a crime spree throughout central Illinois. In the end, a veteran officer is dead and multiple people are victimized in several different locations. Months later, one of the victims in this crime spree is found dead with his friend in a double homicide that is still unsolved. This is True Crime Takedown, and I am your host, Troy Daniels. We have a guest host, Don Coyne Trimble, with us during this series focused on Midwest murders. Don and I are friends, and we've worked together on Crime Stoppers at the local, state, and national level for many years. As you know, the unsolved double homicide was what drew my attention to this crime spree. After starting to do our research, we learned that there were numerous felonies committed by these two suspects in central Illinois after Arnie Graves was murdered in Chicago, and his vehicle was driven about two hours south to central Illinois. In fact, that is exactly where this episode begins. On June 21st, 2007, at about 8.45 a.m., a vehicle was stopped by an Illinois State Police Trooper. It is what is referred to as a, quote, routine stop, since the trooper was stopping it because the vehicle had tinted windows that were too dark, according to Illinois traffic laws. Just an equipment violation, no big deal. The stopped car was a Silver Infinity G35 luxury vehicle registered to a guy named Arnie Graves, who lived in Chicago, Illinois, about two hours north. This traffic stop occurred on I-57 near Posotum, Illinois, which is about 150 miles south of Chicago. At the time of the stop, the trooper did not know that the registered owner of the car, Arnie Graves, had been murdered in Chicago earlier that day. In our previous episode, Midwest Murders Episode 1, we spoke to Detective Tim Nolan, who is a retired 30-year investigator from the Chicago Police Department who actually worked the murder case of Arnie Graves, the registered owner of the vehicle that had just been stopped by the Illinois State Police. And Detective Nolan had seen just about everything since he was an Area 1 detective assigned to investigate homicides and the most violent crimes in the south side of Chicago. He gave us a lot of detail about the background of Arnie's murder and really did a great job of explaining what he found at the crime scene. Detective Nolan told us that whoever killed Arnie Graves made it look like it was done by a satanic ritual serial killer. When the Illinois State Police stopped this vehicle for having too dark of tint on the windows, the trooper had no idea that the vehicle belonged to a murder victim who had been killed just hours before. When they got stopped by the state 
police down on I-57, the state police had come up to them because of the tinted glass. Now in Illinois, we have pretty strict uh, rules when it comes to tinted glass. We don't want the driver's side completely blacked out. They got stopped by the Illinois State Police. He stopped them right around Pisodum. And when the trooper walked up to them, they rolled down the window, he gets a hit of marijuana smoke. He asked for the driver's license and the registration, and William Thompson has a driver's license, but he doesn't have the registration. So the trooper goes back to the car with the driver's license and calls for a canine assist. So this is after the murder. Yusuf Brown probably doesn't know about the murder, but neither does the state trooper because we don't know about the murder until 7 or 8, 8.30 that night. So the trooper calls for a canine unit and the canine unit shows up and the canine does a search around the car and the canine hits on the door panel over by the passenger side. The canine unit walked back to the trooper and said the dog hit on the panel by the passenger side. So the trooper got out and walked up to the driver's side of the car and told William Thompson, step out of the car. And William Thompson said, why? The trooper said, you know why. And with uh -huh. that, William Thompson hit the gas and the chase was on. So at the time of the stop, the car was occupied by two males. It was later learned that their names were William Thompson, the driver, and his brother, Yusuf Brown. The trooper asked them to get out of the car because the canine had indicated that there was the smell of drugs in the car. Of course, the trooper did not know yet that the car belonged to a murder victim. When William Thompson asked the trooper why he wanted them out of the car, the trooper responded, you know why. William hit the gas and took off. Unfortunately, the Infinity G35 got away from the trooper and headed southbound on I-57. It is believed that William and Yusuf continued on I-57 and most likely got off at I-57 at the Tuscola exit, about 10 miles to the south. The thought is that if you just fled from a trooper on an interstate, that you probably want to get off that interstate as soon as possible. And the Tuscola exit is the first one that they would have come to. Once they got off the interstate at that exit, it would have taken them about 15 miles to get to Villa Grove, Illinois, which is east of Interstate 57. It is also believed that William and Yusuf did not know this part of Illinois very well. No one really knows what roads they traveled, but we do know that they eventually pulled into a farmhouse just to the southwest of Villa Grove, Illinois in the country. This farmhouse belonged to Ryan Riddle and he was there with a guy who was one of his buddies. Ryan Riddle's house is about 25 driving miles from the place of the traffic stop by the trooper. From details provided by police reports, news reports and interviews, things got ugly quickly for Ryan and his male friend once William and Yusuf arrived at Ryan's house. Ryan was inside his house and was believed to be hanging out with his buddy. Ryan was a farmer and did not have anywhere to go that morning. In fact, it is believed that they had been out partying the night before and were just continuing to hang out the next morning. William and Yusuf pulled into Ryan's driveway driving the Infinity G35 owned by murder victim Arnie Graves. When they got out of the car, they approached Ryan's house and entered the house where they were both armed with handguns. They asked Ryan and his friend if they had any money and demanded the keys to his pickup truck. They eventually took Ryan and his friend and tied them up with electrical cords. Ryan was placed on the floor on his stomach with his hands tied behind his back with a gag placed in his mouth. There was also a female friend of Ryan's who just happened to stop by the farmhouse while this home invasion was occurring. 
She had come there to deliver two baseball tickets for an upcoming outing with a group of friends. She pulled into the driveway and stopped the van she was driving. The two black male suspects got out of Ryan's truck and walked back to her van. Her driver's door was opened and the gun was stuck in her side. She was pulled out of the van. They demanded money, but she told them she didn't have any. They took the van keys from her and took her inside. Once inside, Yusuf tied her up with electrical cords while William pointed a gun at her. They asked her if there was anyone who was waiting for her to return and how long they expected her to be gone. She told them that there were people who would be expecting her to immediately return. They placed her tied up on the floor next to Ryan. William and Lucif looked through the house and appeared to be trying to find money and anything else of value. Before William and Yusuf left, they issued a very clear warning. They told them that if they called police and told them about this, that they would return and kill their families. They took Ryan's male friend outside with them. William and Yusuf walked out of the house. Ryan and the female friend heard cars pull out of the driveway. Once they thought it was safe, they were able to untie themselves enough to notify police. They called 911 about 10.30 that morning. The caller was frantic and told the dispatcher that all three of them had been tied up, but that the two suspects took Ryan's male friend with them. Ryan and his female friend did not know where their male friend was. They described the two suspects and stated that both Ryan's truck and the female's van had been taken. They stated that they were scared because the suspects threatened to come back and kill them if they called police. In fact, they were actually going around and locking all of the doors while they were talking to 911 to keep the suspects from getting back inside the house. A sergeant from the Douglas County Sheriff's Office and the Villa Grove Police Chief responded to the 911 call at Ryan Riddle's residence. When they arrived, they could hear banging and yelling coming from the area just west of the garage. They located the Silver Infinity G35, which belonged to Arnie Graves. They could hear that there was a subject yelling from inside the trunk. They tried to get into the vehicle, but found all the doors were locked. They were eventually able to get the doors unlocked, but then could not find the trunk release. So they asked the person inside the locked trunk to try to use the safety release inside the trunk. The person was able to find the safety release and free himself from the trunk. When officers lifted the trunk, he was still tied up. So the officers cut the bindings and got him out of the vehicle. As soon as he was out of the vehicle, Ryan's male friend told the officers that he was placed in the vehicle by the two suspects. He described the larger suspect as wearing a black t-shirt with a silver nine millimeter semi-automatic handgun. And the smaller suspect was wearing a white t-shirt and he was armed with a 357 revolver. Chief Deputy Tommy Martin from the Douglas County Sheriff's Office was on duty and heard the radio call about the home invasion that had occurred at Ryan Riddle's house and that the suspects had Ryan's pickup and the van that belonged to his female friend. While heading east towards Ryan's house on Hayes Road, Chief Deputy Martin spotted the vehicles heading west away from the area of Ryan's house near Interstate 57. At 10.42 a.m., Chief Deputy Martin radioed other officers that the suspects were in the tan van and dark colored pickup truck heading west away from the crime scene. Chief Deputy Martin was heading east on Hayes Road in the country and they were heading west. At 10.43 a.m., a minute later, officers heard Chief Deputy Martin advise that he could see the suspect vehicles again and then heard Chief Deputy Martin advise that shots had been fired and he had been hit. Officers responded to his location as quickly as possible. Officers found his squad car parked along the side of the road with its emergency lights on. 
Officers notified dispatch that they had found the vehicle and noticed the vehicle damage from what appeared to be caused by gunfire. Chief Deputy Martin was sitting slumped over the middle console of the car and hanging his head over the front passenger seat. Officers noticed a wound to his left side of his face. Thankfully, he was alive, but he was having a hard time breathing. Officers were trying to position his head in a way that would allow him to breathe easier. Officers began to do first aid and apply pressure and gauze on his left cheek. Fire personnel arrived and gave him oxygen until an ambulance showed up and got him ready to transport. An officer unsnapped Chief Deputy Martin's duty holster and removed his Glock pistol from his holster and placed it in his vehicle so that it could be preserved for evidence. The officer counted the rounds in the weapon and determined that it appeared that Chief Deputy Martin had not fired his weapon. Chief Deputy Martin was transported to the hospital while all those that knew about the shooting hoped and prayed for him. Two nine millimeter bullet casings were found on the roadway near Chief Deputy Martin's vehicle. Crime scene technicians arrived and took possession of the bullet casings and his handgun. His squad car was also towed in and secured in a safe location for evidence. After looking at the damage to his squad car, it was determined that at least one of the suspects opened fire on him as he was approaching them from the opposite direction. He was struck in the left side of the face and left chest while driving. His vehicle had broken glass on both the front and rear driver's doors and passenger front door from apparent gunfire. About the same time that officers were providing medical care to Chief Deputy Tommy Martin, Ryan Riddle's pickup truck was found abandoned about a mile west of his location near the intersection of Hayes Road and Route 45. Officers believed that William and Yusuf were now in the van together. At 10.46 a.m., approximately three minutes after Chief Deputy Tommy Martin was shot, an Illinois State Police Trooper found the van nearby. The trooper tried to stop the van, but it immediately fled from him. The van got on I-57 and started to flee southbound. At 10.54 a.m., the trooper radioed that the chase reached speeds of 100 miles per hour. Someone from the van was firing shots at the officers and some of the rounds hit the trooper squad car. A minute later, a state police supervisor gave permission for officers to use deadly force to end the chase if they were able to. A few minutes later, radio traffic from the chase showed that officers were very concerned that the subjects in the van may take hostages if they were allowed to get away. By 10.59 a.m., the van had crashed in Arcola, Illinois, which is another small town off of Interstate 57, about 10 miles south of Tuscola. Once the van was in Arcola, it spun out in gravel near the railroad tracks. Yusuf Brown was pulled from the driver's seat of the van by police and arrested. William Thompson ran from the crash into a local Arcola bank that was open. Within approximately 15 minutes of Chief Deputy Tommy Martin being shot, Yusuf was in custody. Unfortunately, William was still on the loose and the hostage situation that police feared would happen if either of these two got away was just getting started. Now, about five minutes after William had entered the bank in Arcola, there was a 911 call from inside the bank. Transcripted notes from that 911 call show that the caller is giving William's description and says something about a gun being pointed to a grandchild's head. Initially, William kept five people inside the bank as his hostages, including the bank manager. The banker talked with the 911 operator, but the 911 operator could hear a male voice telling the banker what to say. William demanded that the FBI show up at the building. 
He promised that he would surrender if the FBI arrived. Williams stated that he just did not want any shots fired. As the conversation continued, William also relayed through the banker that he wanted to see his brother Yusuf, who was outside in the van that was stolen. The banker told 911 that there were no children still in the bank, but that William had a gun. William advised that all police had to do was cooperate and no one would get hurt. William wanted a call back in 15 minutes, but wanted to end the call immediately, and the call was disconnected. While an officer, I was fortunate to serve a SWAT for many years. One of the responding officer's first responsibilities was to secure the perimeter around the bank to make sure that William did not get out and that no one else got in. Police were also shutting down all the roads around the bank and making sure that no customers accidentally walked into the hostage situation. Police were also making sure that medical services were notified and standing by in case there were any injuries of people in or outside the bank, including the officers. I'm sure officers were quite concerned that William could walk out with a hostage and get into another car and then another high-speed chase would happen. Officers wanted to absolutely make sure that there was not another chase. I imagine that every available officer from every jurisdiction was responding as quickly as possible to secure the bank and help in any way they can. Fortunately, officers were able to contain William inside the bank. During the day, he slowly released four of his hostages. According to the Herald and Review reporter, Herb Meeker, William peacefully surrendered and released his last hostage, the bank manager, about seven and a half hours after the standoff started. During this incident, officers from 15 different police jurisdictions, including two tactical teams from the Illinois State Police and Champaign County responded to assist. Shortly after the bank hostage situation was resolved, Chicago police checked on Arnie Graves since his vehicle was used in this crime spree. Police found his body in his condo on Michigan Avenue and it appeared Arnie Graves had been murdered. Chief Deputy Tommy Martin went through surgery on the night he was shot and initially he was in critical condition and stable. The round that entered his left chest went through his lung and hit his spine, which paralyzed him. Over the next month, he suffered medical setbacks and complications. According to the Herald and Review reporter Huey Freeman, Chief Deputy Martin had 10 surgeries during this time until he died from an infection caused by his injuries on July 17, 2007. Tommy was just 59 years old when he gave his life in the defense of peace and for others in his community. Tommy was blessed with a daughter and a son and several grandchildren. He was also a deacon of his church. As a young man, he served in the Navy during the Vietnam War. In 1978, he started with the Illinois State Police as a crime scene investigator and CSI field supervisor. As a crime scene technician for the Illinois State Police, he was involved in the crime scene investigation of many hundreds of homicides and serious felonies in the course of his career. His duties included training and quality assurance manager for the entire crime scene services command until he retired in 2002. As a young detective, I was lucky to occasionally work on an investigation where he processed the crime scene and I got to hear some of his stories. Tommy was well-liked and extremely well-respected in his field. His professional and competent work for 24 years resulted in justice for numerous victims and their families. Douglas County Sheriff Charlie McGrew was a friend of Tommy's and they worked together for many years at the Illinois State Police. Once Charlie became sheriff, he brought Tommy on as his chief deputy in 2004, a job Tommy held for three years until he was killed in the line of duty. 
I, along with hundreds of others, came to honor his service and his sacrifice at his memorial service, including officers from agencies from throughout Illinois. Now that Chief Deputy Tommy Martin had died, the charges that William and Yusuf were facing just got even more significant. They were still sitting in jail and waiting for these cases to be disposed of. These cases were all extremely serious and detectives were finishing up, sending evidence to labs, doing interviews, and writing all their reports. Chicago police were still investigating their possible roles in the murder of Arnie Graves. Officers down in central Illinois were investigating the home invasion involving Ryan and his two friends. The attempted shooting of another trooper during the high-speed chase, the bank hostage incident, and the murder of Chief Deputy Tommy Martin. Here's a list of the charges that officers were investigating. First-degree murder, attempted murder, aggravated discharge of a firearm, home invasion, aggravated kidnapping, armed robbery, aggravated unlawful restraint, aggravated vehicular hijacking, unlawful possession of weapons by a felon, aggravated fleeing or attempting to elude a police officer, financial institution robbery. There were numerous pieces of evidence and many interviews conducted in all of these investigations. According to excellent reporting by the News Gazette's reporter, Mary Shank, here is important information provided by Douglas County State's Attorney Kevin Nolan about evidence examined from these cases. When William Thompson was arrested from the bank, the 9mm handgun he was using was seized and so were the clothes he was wearing. The lab found evidence of gunshot residue on the right cuff of his shirt. In addition, they found blood belonging to Arnie Graves, the Chicago murder victim, on a sock that William was wearing. Arnie Graves' car keys to his affinity were found in Ryan Riddle's pickup that had been stolen during the home invasion and later abandoned about a mile from where Chief Deputy Tommy Martin was shot. Arnie Graves' blood was found on his car keys found in the truck. The 9mm handgun that was seized from William was linked to rounds that were recovered from Chief Deputy Tommy Martin's body. The gun was also linked to rounds that hit Trooper Mike Sturgeon's squad car. Fortunately, Trooper Sturgeon was not hit by any of the rounds that were fired towards him during the high-speed chase. Remember, there were two 9mm shell casings found on the road near where Chief Deputy Martin had been shot. One fact learned during the investigation was that the 9mm semi-automatic handgun used to kill Chief Deputy Tommy Martin was stolen in a burglary reported to Chicago Police Department in May 2007, about a month before this crime spree. Eventually, justice was served. In March 2009, one year and nine months after Chief Deputy Tommy Martin had been murdered, William Thompson, age 28, pled guilty to his homicide. The state's attorney had been seeking the death penalty, but allowed William to plead guilty to murder for a sentence of natural life in prison. William claimed that near the day of the crime spree that he had been using horse tranquilizers and that his own father had died just before he started the rampage. In September 2009, a little over two years after the crime spree, Yusuf Brown, age 26, pled guilty to home invasion and aggravated kidnapping for going into Ryan Riddle's home and tying him up and two of his friends and for putting a gun into a female side while she was outside and forcing her into the house. A judge later sentenced Yusuf to two consecutive 30-year terms. This means that he will need to serve the first 30 years before he serves the second 30 years for a total maximum of 60 years in prison. 
Journal Gazette Times Courier reporter Dave Fope spoke to Chief Deputy Tommy Martin's adult daughter after the sentencing of William and Yusuf. She told him she was thankful that William looked her in the eye and apologized and showed remorse for killing her father. She described her dad, Tommy, as a no-nonsense person who thought people should do what's right. She also said he was still quick with the joke. The words of wisdom that he left her with was that if she started something, do it right and enjoy what you do. Chief Deputy Tommy Martin left this earth doing what he loved. His daughter said that he wanted to be a police officer as long as she could remember. She said that he just really loved it. He loved working with people and seeing justice being served. The Cook County State's Attorney's Office in Chicago declined to charge anyone in the murder of Arnie Graves. As detailed in Episode 1 of Midwest Murders, the state's attorney believed that the cost of prosecution would not be justified since William was already sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Chief Deputy Tommy Martin. Episode 3, our next episode, will detail a stunning twist of fate involving home invasion victim Ryan Riddle. Approximately seven months after the home invasion, in January 2008, Ryan Riddle was found murdered with his best friend, Mark Prossy, in Prossy's house in rural Chrisman, which is about 30 miles from Ryan's house. This double homicide is still unsolved 13 years later. Please listen to Midwest Murders Episode 3. Family and friends of Ryan Riddle and Mark Prossy are begging for answers on who killed them and why. Thanks for listening. You can help us fight crime by joining the True Crime Takedown team through Patreon. You can join the Takedown team by going to truecrimetakedown.com team. Our Patreon Takedown team members get exclusive episodes, audio extras, bonus content, and much more. Pictures and sources for this podcast can be found on our website. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at True Crime Takedown. Our theme music, The Takedown, is by Mitch Marlowe. We'll be back with a new episode soon. True Crime Takedown is a production of Crime Fighters Media.